This morning I want to uh, look at the critical role of joy. It was something I talked about at the annual meeting. I wanted to elaborate more on it. Um, and I have to say that it really comes at a critical time in my own life because this, is, this has been something that I've wanted to concentrate on in my life for a while. Uh, but it seems that uh, what I'm discovering is it's very, very difficult to develop a perspective uh, for joy. Because as we even sang this morning, uh, and James drew attention to it, you know, fear not, I am with thee, be not dismayed, for I am thy God, I will still give thee aid. I strengthen thee, help thee, and cause thee to stand, upheld by my gracious omnipotent hand. I wonder if we really believe that. Through the deep waters I call thee to go. The, the rivers of woe shall not thee overflow. Oh, yeah? Oh, yeah? For me, so often they just seem to overflow. And then how do you get joy? John Denley lived in England in 1555. One day, on the way to visit some friends, he was stopped and searched by authorities who found his written confession of faith. Denley believed the church was built on the apostles and the prophets, with Christ as its head, and that the present state church, the Church of England, was not part of this true church. In his time, many of in its in in this <laughs> Church of England in its time, uh, many of his teachings were not according to the Bible. So. Because they found him with these things, they turned him over to the government of, a government official who turned him over to the bishop for questioning. Denley would, not, Denley would not back down from his statement of faith, so he was condemned to die and turned over to the sheriff. Within six weeks, he was sent to the stake to be burned. And when they lit the wood beneath him, Denley showed no fear. He just cheerfully sang a psalm as the flames rose around him. One of his tormentors picked up a piece of wood and threw it at him, hitting him in the face. He hoped to anger or silence Denley, but Denley only responded, truly, you have spoiled a good old song. <laughs> and then he spread his arms and continued to sing until he was consumed. You know, all of us, if we are true believers, are in some arena of suffering. For some, it will feel like you're being burned alive. Others, it will feel like you're drowning. For some, it will be such a darkness that you, you don't know if you can make it through, how you're going to get through it. It may be in the arena of your home or the arena of work or the arena of political or economic situation or the arena of hurtful relationships. It could be even here. But we can be sure that we all will face, listen, the horror of suffering and the fears that it evokes if we are believers. Fears that result from doing right. But even worse, fears that result from doing wrong. In every case, life seems to be draining out of us. 
Let me ask you, are you being tormented somewhere because of your firm faith? Are you being tormented because of your sin? All true believers will be tied to a stake of some kind where the flames of a severe trial will feel like life is going away. I am dying. When that happens, what characterizes us? Whether suffering for right or for wrong, what characterizes us? What I find in my own life is not what I'm about to say. Are we characterized by singing, security, spiritual fruit of love, joy, peace? So often, we're we're worn down by the many little things that seem to steal life from us. So we're not, most of us are never going to be tied to a stake. But the little things that encroach upon our life steal from us. And when that happens, what comes out of your heart comes out of mine. The fruit of the Spirit or the deeds of the flesh. Are you hopeful this morning? Or are you discouraged and depressed? How would your family characterize you? I mean, I may smile here. Kathy pays for it at home. Because you see, she knows whether I'm a man of joy or not. Some of you know me and know whether I am or I am not. How would Jesus evaluate your disposition? Look at Luke 6, verse 22 and 23. This would just be one of many verses. In this passage, we see Jesus speaking to his disciples regarding suffering for doing what is right. Notice what he says in verse 22, Luke 6, 22. Blessed are you when men hate you and ostracize you, and cast insults at you, and spurn your name as evil for the sake of the Son of Man. Be glad in that day, and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. For in the same way their fathers used to treat the prophets. Now notice a few things from these verses. Notice that those who caused the pain were those of the family of Israel. The fathers treated the prophets badly. Notice that those who caused the pain did so by ruining reputations, spurning your name as evil, or by attacking and shaming individuals personally, that is, insulting them. Or, seeking to have them treated as an outcast, they sought to ostracize them. Those that caused the pain, notice, did this because of hatred in their heart. It's not a a fun scene. None of us like 
to be told you're evil. None of us like to be insulted. None of us like to be treated as an outcast. None of us like to have our lives threatened in any way. And when that happens, it's a heavy weight. You second guess yourself. You wonder, are they right? Maybe I should be put outside. And you start feeling the pain of what is coming your way. And what does Jesus say? Go climb in a hole. That's what you want to do. But notice, he says they are to be glad and to leap for joy. Their reward will be great. What is happening to them is nothing new. They were not to have a martyr attitude. There was to be no self-pity. There was not to be an angry disposition in return. They were to be glad. I don't know that many times. And, and you might think that maybe Jesus somehow has forgotten the kind of world that they were living in or the kind of world we live in when he demands that believers be glad, rejoice, leave for joy. Does he really understand? He hasn't forgotten. And herein is the rub. There is pain of such intensity and such heartbreak, such darkening of the life that the only thing that will get us through is the ability to leap for joy. That's it. But where is joy? What is joy? We are to be able to manage pain and joy together. And it doesn't matter whether you're suffering for right doing or for your wrongdoing. Those two must coexist. And that's what makes joy hard to understand. When we talk about joy, we don't get it because it's either, you know, you're, you're on one end of the spectrum where you're just ah, happy, happy, happy in Jesus. And you talk to somebody and you say, you know, I'm suffering. Oh, you know, just be happy in Jesus. And then on the other end, you, you've got the person that's so down and so depressed and just doesn't know how to f find any hope. And, and we, we have a hard time putting... Joy and sadness or joy and sorrow together in our own lives, let alone with each other. We don't know what to do with it. It's just very difficult for us to, to understand this. It's hard for me. And I'm trying to write a book on it. I don't get it practically. And so I hope that the principles this, this morning that I try to lay out will help us in Developing a framework. Actually, my, my sermon notes 
for the, for the last several weeks, because I developed these in a simple way for the annual meeting, but in the last several weeks have been my prayer guideline for the last several weeks. And, and God has been testing me whether I believe it or not. And I pray that it might be an outline for you in some way to keep when you pray. But we must understand what joy is. We must understand what are the consequences of joy. And we must understand what causes joy. But before we do, why don't we pray? Father, we ask that you might guide us this morning and bring some truth to the real situations in our life. And may it be that our faith would take hold of truth. And in doing so, we might learn, at least in a small way, a seed form of how we can learn to be joyful in suffering. To sing while being burned at the stake. Give us grace to learn that we might see you our dear Lord, and be filled with joy for Jesus' sake. Amen. What is joy? The Evangelical Dictionary of Theology defines joy in this way. It's a delight in life that runs deeper than pain or pleasure. It is not limited nor tied solely to external circumstances. Joy is a gift of God. It is a quality of life and not simply a fleeting emotion. Joy, he says, would re results when one is caught up in something greater than oneself. That's such a key phrase. You ought to underline that. When you're caught up in something greater than oneself, great enough to give meaning and purpose to all of life and to every relationship. That's why Psalm 16:11 says, Thou wilt make known to me the path of life. In thy presence is the fullness of joy. In thy right hand are pleasures forever. Joy is found in the presence of God, in knowing God and delighting in what he is doing. It's the excellence of his character and the beauty of his work. One man says that the normal heart attitude of a Christian is rejoicing in the Lord and in the lessons of life he gives. The normal? <laughs> I think the editor missed a word in his definition. Is it normal? I trust it is. The Westminster Shorter Catechism asks this question, what is the chief end of man? Most of you know that. The chief end of man is what? To glorify God and what? Enjoy him forever. Matter of fact, John Piper in his book, in one of his books says this, that the chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. We are to have joy in God. In joy. I mean, joy in God. I mean, there should be in us a joy in God. Our joy is to be founded in the Lord and nothing else. Nothing else. You hear that? Our joy is to be found in the Lord and nothing else. While the circumstances of life may cause pain or pleasure, 
Our real deep-seated joy rises above circumstances to a communion with God that satisfies the human heart in any circumstance. Do you hear that? We rise above our circumstances, whether they're painful or pleasurable, to a communion with God so that we are satisfied in whatever situation we are in. Without a satisfying communion with God, now without a satisfying communion, we will never know joy. Never. Most of us think we find joy or lack of it from circumstances. Most of us do. Most people in churches would even say that. We find it from our circumstances. And nothing could be further from the truth. Let me tell you how one man defines joy. I think I even read this before, but I like this definition. He says, joy, the joy that Jesus demands now in that day is not chipper. <laughs> it's not joy light. It's not superficial or marked with levity. This is a mistake too many people and too many churches make. They think that Jesus' demand for joy is a demand to tell jokes or to weave slapstick into Christian corporate life. I don't smell the Jerusalem-bound Jesus in that atmosphere. Something has gone wrong. What is wrong is that the aroma of suffering is missing. For Jesus, the demand for joy is a way to live with suffering and to outlast suffering. Therefore, this joy is serious. It is a kind you fight for by cutting off your hand and selling all your possessions and carrying your cross to Calvary. This joy has scars. It sings happy songs with tears running down their face. It remembers the dark hours and knows that more are coming. The road to heaven is a hard road, but it's not joyless. I I like the way he talks about that. Joy is serious. It's not frivolous. Joy consists of a depth of safety in the midst of immense sorrow and difficulty. Joy is not jokes but an abiding understanding and confidence that all is well in spite of it all. (laughs) Joy means that we are satisfied with God and his work while suffering under sin and evil, even our own sin and evil, and evildoers. And joy must override, if I can say it that way, suffering. That is, it must have the last word. We must be able to honestly and genuinely say, I hurt, but I am truly okay. We are suffering, but we are truly just fine. Why? Because we have Jesus. Is that that enough? If it's not enough, then you'll never know joy. Because we have Jesus. He secures us and he satisfies me. And that is the foundation for all my joy. And I have to admit, it hasn't been. In many ways. It's something I have to learn a lot. Thus, joy is an emotion. Some people want to say joy is not an emotion. It is an emotion that one feels in difficult and delightful times an emotion of confidence and security 
and satisfaction in God by faith in Jesus. Our joy is in the Lord. Now, that's sort of a description of joy. And I'm sure for most of us, it's an elusive thing. But how, how, what are the consequences of not having joy and then how do we develop joy? This, this could be easily three parts. And I'm going to do this this morning. Uh, and I want to go through what are the consequences of no joy sort of quickly because what I found this week is it's the second half of the sermon that changed me. The first, the, the first part is important because we need to realize what happens when we have no joy. How important is joy? And so when there is no joy, it affects, first of all, our perspective. It affects our perspective. We, in essence, are saying when there is no joy that we cannot see what God has placed into the present setting for our joy. That is, how he is manifesting himself in our circumstances. Our vision for God and truth has become obscured and where there is no vision, people perish. Our thinking is twisted to belief that life is bad and harmful and destructive And we can't see anything else. We struggle with pain that comes from doing right. And when we do, let me just say, sometimes it's a little easier to look to the Lord and and find comfort and help when you're really confident that you you did the right thing. However, pain from doing wrong produces so many other emotions that joy is more difficult. When you do something you know is very wrong, how do you find joy in that? See, it is the pain that takes away our perspective. Do you hear that? Pain takes away our perspective. The good seems delayed. The good is often obscured, especially when we are deserving of the suffering. It is the pain that comes to the forefront and blinds us to the future. Do you see that? Pain becomes these dark glasses that that keep us from seeing. One man writes this, The greatest danger trouble affords is not pain, the pain we feel, but listen, the impression we get. I like that. It's not the pain we feel, but the impression we get. It is easy to feel forgotten, even abandoned, or turned on by God when in trouble. The enemy of our soul never tires of whispering that God is not there, or worse, he may be there, but he doesn't care, or even worse, he is there and he is mad. In the midst of trouble, the whispers sound like shouts. In the midst of trouble, the devil's arguments grow in plausibility, because you see, our trouble becomes his evidence. Trouble, this man says, is the signal to look away from trouble and to fix our gaze squarely on our God. I need perspective and faith to believe that even if the pain and shame increase, good is just around the corner. We often just don't see it or believe it. But Paul says this, we should know it 
we know all things work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called, to, called according to his purpose. We know. Do you know? Everything, whether good or evil, in our life has benefit. Do you know that? So much we could say, but I want to keep moving. You see, it is the pain that shifts our perspective and solidifies us in darkness so that we cannot see any good. And now grief overcomes. We need to gain a new perspective. When there's no joy, we know immediately we don't have the right perspective. That's the point. Two, when there's no joy, we don't have power. We don't have power. Two passages help us think of this. In Nehemiah 8.10, Nehemiah says, Do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is what? Your strength. The joy of the Lord is your strength. In Galatians 5, 22 and 23, it says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience and goodness and kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. You see, from these two passages, what we, what we see is this, is that this strength is the fruit of joy, and joy is the fruit of the Spirit. They're there. Thus, in order for joy to exist, the Spirit must be present. And secondly, more for joy to be manifested, we must be submissive to the Spirit. And since the Spirit and the Word work in tandem, one must be submissive to the Word as well if joy is to be present. The Spirit, by means of the Word, is the one who gives us power to mortify the flesh and to live for God. The Spirit. But when there's no joy, we have no power to do that. It seems backwards, right? Like, I don't have joy, go get joy. Then, you know, it just seems funny. The Spirit produces joy and joy produces strength. And spiritual strength then allows us to engage our spiritual battles. Joy. If we don't have joy, we will have no power to overcome evil or to live rightly and purely. Thus, we must learn to find joy in every circumstance. And boy, is that hard. But let me tell you, if your circumstance is causing you to run to God to try to find where joy is, and you're praying, and you're saying, God, help me see. Where's the joy in this? I, I need a different perspective. I, If that is what's happening, you know, joy is already having a benefit. I mean, the trial is already having a benefit. It's driving you to God. Now, that's something to be joyful about. God, I'm, I'm coming to you now. Now what better place to be? And from there, you can start asking the Lord to show you more and more the joy in the trial. But the main purpose of trials is just simply this. The Lord wants us to have less of the world. 
and to want more of him. Suffering leads us to him and therein is joy and the power to live in suffering. The Lord wants us to want him and trials are the means. Suffering are the means. So when there is no joy, it affects our perspective, it affects our power. Third, it affects our purity. If devotion to Christ in the Christian life is not one of joy to you, you hear that? If the, if, you're Chris, if the devotion to Christ and devotion to the Christian life is not one of joy, you don't really enjoy Christ and you don't really enjoy living for Christ. If, if that is not part of your life, then you will seek for joy somewhere else. You will. And remember, I'm not equating joy with good circumstances or a painless existence. The Christian life is painful. It is the joy and the pain that sees us through the suffering. However, if there is no joy in Christ and living for him, then we will seek to find another joy, an inappropriate joy for our life. And that's why... For many professing Christians, they find greater joy. Now listen, they find greater joy in good things like their children, their homes, their material possessions, food, exercise, their work. They find greater joy in that than they do in the Lord. That's why so many Christians find greater joy in wicked things like pornography and alcohol and any lust or watching a lot of TV or movies because really to sit down and be in the Bible and to pray and just talk with God and to read his word is not a joy. Say, so I'm going to invest my life somewhere else. And see, saints will engage in these other things rather than just draw near to Christ because you see, it's not a joy. <laughs> And when our joy is lacking, see, our perspective has become twisted. Our power to overcome evil is now limited. Our values have become misplaced. Joy is outside of Jesus. We are now seeking a counterfeit form of joy, and our lives now become corrupt. Whenever good or bad things, listen, rise above the supremacy of Jesus in our life, we have become defiled. We are false worshipers given to false idols. That's why in Matthew 10, 37 to 39, Jesus says this, He who loves father and mother more than me, not worthy of me. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. He who does not take up his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. And he who has found his life shall lose it and he who has lost his life for my sake shall find it. You lose your life, you find it. But see, the, the fact is, is, what do you love more than? Is there anything you love more than Jesus? See, Jesus must satisfy, if not him, something else will be sought to fill the void. And as a result, we will sow to the flesh and we will reap corruption. See, when there is no joy, it affects our perspective, it affects our power, it affects our purity, it affects our partnership. Our partnership. See, when, where joy is lacking, then other negative attitudes fill in. 
And where there are negative attitudes, unity will ultimately be destroyed. All other aspects of the Spirit's fruit will be corrupted because the fruit of the Spirit is really viewed as a unit. It's viewed as a whole. So love will be turned to hatred and bitterness. Peace will become... Instead of peace, there will be anxiety. Instead of patience, there will be manipulation. Instead of kindness, there will be cruelty. Instead of goodness, there will be evil and wrong. Instead of faithfulness, there will be disloyalty. Instead of gentleness, there will be abrasiveness. Instead of self-control, there will be self-indulgence. And in addition to those, even outside of the fruit of the Spirit, instead of hope, there will be depression. Instead of confidence, there will be discouragement. Instead of courage, there will be self-protection. Instead of truth, there will be deception. And all of these things and more are ours when there is no joy. And so the psalmist says, Oh, satisfy us in the morning with thy loving kindness that we may sing for joy and be glad all the days. Satisfy me in the morning, Lord, so that I can go throughout this day singing to your glory and living in joy so that I don't corrupt things. No joy then, no satisfaction in life, discontentment, there will be no song. And when the saints are not satisfied and joyful, then they seek. Now listen, when saints are not satisfied and joyful, then they seek to use others for their own personal gain. And it destroys unity. Remember Yodi and Syntyche, those two wonderful women? What does... Paul say to them in a public letter, I just cannot imagine to have it read and my name come up. You know, but it comes up and he says, I urge you, Odia and Syntyche, to live in harmony in the Lord. These women are fighting. And what does he say then? Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Stop all the bickering. Stop all the infighting. Rejoice. If you have joy, it produces unity. If you don't, it produces disunity. Joy is critical to unity. Because you see, joy is based in safety. And where there is no joy, we manifest that we're not safe. And when we are not safe, then we will not be truthful, vulnerable, honest with each other but we will be self-protective, which is the subtle undercurrent of disunity. Living for self. Lack of joy leads to disunity. So where there is no joy, it affects our perspective, power, purity, partnership, and our proclamation. Just simple. I mean, it makes sense. Why would anyone proclaim something that brings them no joy? But when you're filled with joy, you, you, you want to tell others of it. I mean, what is the point of Christian singing? And it, it is an expression of our testimony to one another and to the Lord when we sing. And when singing is flat and down and weak, then what we are saying is, yeah, I don't know, it doesn't mean anything to me, this song, it doesn't have any substance that because you see there's no joy in my heart really 
That's why in Ephesians 5, 18 to 20, he says, you know, don't get drunk with wine. That is just be filled with the Spirit. And what happens when you're filled with the Spirit? You're speaking to one another in psalms and in hymns, spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, even the Father. See, that's what happens. You come together when there's joy in your hearts. It, it, it is a testimony. And when there is no joy, then we have nothing to tell. We have nothing to sing about. People talk about what fills their heart. Do you understand that? People talk about what fills their heart. And let me ask you, what do you talk about? What do you talk about? The gospel? Do you talk about the thrill it is of knowing Jesus? Do you talk about your joy in the Lord? Or is it constantly current events, TV, uh, the latest movie, the, the latest book, the, the most recent political thing? The, what is it that fills your heart that when you get with people, that's what comes out? People talk about what fills their heart. And by our joy or lack of it, we are communicating to others something about Jesus. And sixth, if when there is no joy, it affects our pull. And that, what do I mean? Our attractiveness to people. Why would anyone want Christ if all they see is miserable people? Sour Christians. If all they see are Christians who find more joy in the world than in Jesus. If all we do is complain about government, school, society, world scene, problems within our own camp, why would anyone be drawn to Jesus? We're just like the rest of the complaining world. It is our conversation that occurs when we, now listen, it is our conversation that occurs when we feel safe with family or friends that gives evidence, now listen, that gives evidence to whether we are truly joyful or not. It's the conversation that occurs when we feel safe that gives evidence to whether we are truly joyful or not. Why? Because in those evidence, we talk about what's most important. We feel safe there. So we can just kind of let it all out. And it's evidence. It's, it's, if, if, in those, if in those gatherings where we feel safe, we are not talking about the Lord and enjoying telling people how much we enjoy him and, and delight in him and express. That doesn't mean it's the only thing. It just means it's, it's the predominant. It's, it's the thing that rises to the top for you. If we're not talking like that, then can I say that when we come together in this setting, we're probably pretending to be joyful, just sort of acting that way, because that's what you do at church. And can I tell you, that's not attractive. And when people come and visit, what they may unconsciously be seeking is a community of people who really do enjoy Jesus as manifested in their singing, in their thankfulness, in their conversations, in the way they go about their ministries, and in just their overwhelming demeanor. 
And when we ask for praises, it's so amazing to me how often when we ask for praises, how hard it is for people to praise God. For myself. And let me tell you, when we ask for praises, we're not trying. Now listen, we're not trying to stir your mind to thankfulness, which is generally what happens. Isn't that what happens? I mean, for me, well, let's have praises. And I'm going, oh, praise. What's a praise? Got to come up with a praise. I need a praise, you know. Where is the praise? You know, all I'm stirring and I, it, it should have been on my lips already. We're trying to give you an opportunity just to express your joy. Real joy is attractive. And please hear me clearly. What I am not saying is act joyful because that is not attractive. What I am saying is be joyful and let the joy that you have in Jesus draw people to him and only you can assess it when there is no joy it affects our perspective our power our purity our partnership our proclamation our pull now that took longer than I thought I want to talk about what causes joy and I have to tell you, this is a developing thing for me. But I think if you can take these things to heart and think about them, I think they might be helpful. I know they will be helpful. What are to be our sources for joy? We can develop biblical joy when we immerse ourselves, first of all, in the knowledge of the person of Jesus, our Savior. Listen, trouble makes us desperate for God. And for that reason, trouble can be regarded as an ally. But when trouble comes and we're desperate for God, I love that song, you know, we sing, I'm desperate for you. I mean, oh, so true. Listen, when, when we are desperate, we must initially immerse ourselves in the character of Jesus, listen, and not in the work of Jesus. On our behalf. First of all, we immerse ourselves in the character of Jesus. This is so hard for us. And you might say, well, what do you mean by that? We have to find joy in the Lord solely because of who he is. And that's it at that point. Just who he is, his beauty, his glory, his majesty, his perfection, his His whole demeanor of what he is, that should be a foundation to joy. Because look, if it's not that, and we're finding our joy solely in what he does for us, our joy is self-centered. You understand that? It's self-serving. It's like, I love you, Jesus. I serve you, Jesus, because Jesus, you do all this stuff for me. That is a form of pride. So now we have joy, if we go that way, that's based in pride. How awful is that? We must first and foremost find our joy in Him and in His character, His glory, glory, regardless of how it affects us. That means we find joy in His wrath. 
We find joy in His love and His mercy and His justice. We, we find joy in the fullness of what our God is. That's why the Friday night beef studies I was hoping would help us see. And even then, I forget. I go immediately to what He did for me. How sick sometimes. It's like finding joy in a beautiful painting. That painting hasn't done anything for you. It just exists in all of its beauty. And what your enjoyment is, is the beauty of it. That's the way it is with God. He's, he's this beautiful one. And we look at him and, boy, it so satisfies my heart. I pray this more these days. It's been a constant prayer. Oh, God, I need to see you. I don't. I don't see your glory. I don't find joy in your beauty or your perfection. I don't even understand it, Lord. I, Lord, I, I need vision. Please, like Moses, show me your glory. Please. And when those glimpses come, can I tell you, it's so rich to have an insight into the beauty of his nature. It's like, oh, how amazing is that? Uh, I was praying even this morning again that, Lord, uh, it would be so much easier to, to find joy in you if I could just see you. <laughs> Why don't you become tangible in some way to us? And then it hits me, even in my notes, but it didn't hit me. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His, what? Glory. Glory is the only begotten of the Father full of what? Grace and truth. Isn't that, isn't that an amazing statement? He didn't say justice and truth. Full of grace and truth. Oh, for my broken heart, for my sin, he's full of grace. But he's not going to compromise his truth. But he's full of grace. We need to be captivated with his glory. One man says, regarded aright, trouble hastens the pace toward God the refuge. Trouble may be the first thing we encounter, but it is never the last thing that counts. Our God is the God of timing and our times. In the hands of the benevolent sovereignty, trouble itself is timely. God's goodness is not diminished by the magnitude of our suffering or the volume of our regard is not diminished by delay. Scripture assures us of God's great love and solitude during trouble. We have known trouble, but he has met us there. Here's the phrase, and he is enough. He's enough. See enough. The person of Jesus is he enough. Secondly, 
we have to not only look at the person of Jesus, we, we have to look at the purpose of Jesus, which is salvation. This morning I was thinking initially too, it's not in my notes, but it just came to my mind. There's, there's kind of a logic in, in the way I was thinking about him this morning in that this Jesus who, who dwelt in the heavenlies, who lived equal to God, came seeking me. He came after me. I was in trouble. And he came after me. Why? To serve me. It says he came to seek and save that which was lost. It says, I've come not to be served, but to serve and to give himself a ransom. So that leads to the third. He came to sacrifice. He sought me, came to serve me. He came to sacrifice for me. Why? To save me. To bless me. And that, that's just so amazing to me. But, but that's kind of preliminary even to what I was going to say. Those are just things I'm thinking. You see, having found joy in the person of Jesus, now our joy may be embellished by a deeper grasp of the purpose of Jesus in suffering than the things that he did for us. Again, this becomes the solution for me and the help for me in the areas where I struggle mostly with my own wrong and evil doing. And it's pain more than the suffering I have because I did right. There's something on my glasses here. First, we must realize that the initial purpose of Jesus coming, listen, this is so good, this is so good for me. I hope it's good for you. The initial purpose that Jesus came was to save wrongdoers and evildoers, not rightdoers. There were none. <laughs> there were none. Matthew 9.12 says he came to help the sick. He didn't come to help the healthy. It's our understanding of how he saves us from our wrong and evil that helps us when we suffer for doing what's right. But the fact is, I don't care what you've done or what I've done in antagonism to God's revealed will or against his commands or how we've hurt people. He's come for us to seek us, to help us, rescue us from our wrongdoing. Now, wonderful. It's just so wonderful. Now we must originally, we must initially think of his work in terms of him coming to rescue us, not for doing right, but for doing wrong, to help us in our wrong. Second purpose was that he came not only to rescue us from, from doing wrong, but he came to make us right with God. So that we might know the joy of communion with God. In Romans 5, 1 and 2, it says, now having been justified by faith, what made right, we have peace with God. 
through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we also have obtained an introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand and notice, and we exalt, we rejoice in the hope of glory. You see, he made me right with God for eternity. And he's come to rescue me out of my wrongdoing, to make me right with God. And how's he done it? Well, he lived for me. He lived for me. Because you see, I don't live very well. I make so many mistakes. I hurt so many people. There is no antagonism really that's ever come toward me that wasn't deserved. Never. Because I'm not good. I'm not perfect in myself. And so he lived for me. He, he, he did for me what I couldn't do. And to understand the very life of Jesus will become a joy to us as we see what he did for us. He also died for us. <laughs> he lived for us and then he died for us. And knowing how he, how and why he lived, his death will take on greater significance in terms of the suffering that he underwent. His death was so full of life because he never knew death. He was not numb to anything. He, he felt, felt the pain in death like no one has ever felt it or ever will. But that's an encouragement to me. Because when I am so overcome with my wrongdoing and with my sin, that, that it just so wipes me out, darkens my life, really at times just says, Lord, take me, please. When I'm so overcome with those kinds of things in my life, I can look at Jesus and say, He knows that. He knows it even more than I did. It had to be so much more overwhelming for Him to die for sin. It wasn't His own, but it was mine. How my sin can cause me sleepless nights and lack of hunger. And yet it's not fully felt by me. Oh, Jesus felt it in Gethsemane. I have never bled in prayer. He not only lived for us, he died for us, he demonstrated his love for us in that. Can you see that in his death? The, the power of the demonstration of love. Romans 5.8 While we were what? Good people. Yet sinners. And by his merits we have been clothed in righteousness. Not mine, his. That's all I've got to hold on to is that coat. And the fact is I can't even hold on to it. He strapped it on. It won't go away. And let me ask you, do we want better treatment in this life than Jesus received? You want to be treated better than he was received? I don't. I want to live like him. And if he suffered for me, oh Lord, teach me how to suffer for others with joy.
And when I do, Lord, I can rejoice more. See, he lived for us. And let me just say this. When we gain the perspective of how he lived for us and died for us and demonstrated his love for us, self-denial and cross-bearing will be to us the means to the highest pleasure in the Lord, not a drudgery to be endured. It's like, oh boy, I got to pick up my cross. I got to deny myself again. When we understand how he lived for us, died for us, demonstrated his love for us in the way he did it, picking up a cross, denying ourselves, will be the means to the greatest pleasures in life. And you know what? He rose for us. He was victorious, and so were we. Third point under this. His purpose was to bless us. When we, real, when we come to realize that Jesus doesn't need something from us, but desires only to give to us, we will be overwhelmed with joy. He doesn't have any need from us. Matthew, uh, Acts 17.25 It just neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. He himself gives to all. I mean, he, he has come to give to you and me. The Lord gives. He doesn't take. The Lord seeks to bless. He doesn't curse. But I'll tell you, when you go into some despicable sin or some repetitive sin or something, and you think, like maybe, like me, that what's he going to do to get me? How's he going to embarrass me? How's he going to shame me? How is he going to destroy my life? Because, see, that's what I deserve. He didn't come to do that. He came to bless. He only desires to bless and to enrich and to impart life. I have come that you might have life and might have it how? Abundantly. One man in a prayer says this, His every work of mercy is for our delight. <laughs> Isn't that great? His every work of mercy. He came not to judge the world, did he? He came to what? Save it. Bless it. See, we must realize initially that Jesus came to save wrongdoers and secondly, that his purpose was to make those wrongdoers right with God so they might enjoy him and thirdly, so that they could enter into the full blessing of God and fourth, his purpose is to turn us from sin so that we follow him and his commands, which are for our blessing. To follow the commands of God is not a drudgery. It's not a burden. It's a way to experience the fullness of joy. If you keep my commandments, you abide in my love. Sin separates us from his love. Sin separates us from the experience of joy. It's when we follow in his commands that we start to experience love and joy. Not because our commands are, are making us acceptable, but because there is not this condemning heart. And you realize that sin, listen, sin diminishes us to the degree to which the Lord seeks to bless us. The Lord wants to bless, but if you choose to sin, you diminish your life by that much. 
These are the purposes. And there's so much more. Oh. Time is a trial. I trust. I may come back. I was going to start Thessalonians after vacation, but maybe one week on joy and finish this because it, it is good. Not my good. It's just good because it's God's good. And, and I pray that we might uh, fully enter into the joy of the Lord. These are hard times for many of us. It's been very apparent to me over the last few weeks of my shortcomings. And, you know, I was feeling pretty sad about some things that happened in the church and things that were being said about me and things that God decided to change that. It's just not about you. Stop being such a pitying guy. Look what you're doing to other people. And you can't fix it. And that just killed me. And I'm grateful. For I'm learning, and I hope you are, what it means to enter into the joy of the Lord. For therein is life and hope and purpose, contagiousness. There's all sorts of things that the Lord wants to give us when we enter into his joy. Let's pray. Father, I'd ask that you would take these things as weak as they are and empower them to change us. Oh, that we would be people who live each day with praise on our lips, even as we talk about the sorrow of our world. This world is hard, and how we long to be free of it. But as long as you have us here, we have purpose, and we have you. And you love us. You care for us. It's demonstrated in the cross. And we have much to be joyful about in you. Even as we suffer in this world. Teach us how to live in that tension of sorrow and joy that we might encourage one another and might glorify you till the day you bring us into the fullness of joy. Can't wait. For all eternity, for your glory, we pray. Amen.